beginning a series from the book of Revelation, I want to invite you to take your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the rack uh, in front of you. Take the Bible and turn to the very last book, uh, the Revelation. And uh, the song that the, the, the band just sang um, and led us in, uh, it's called the Revelation Song. It's actually drawn from uh, part of the Revelation. Um, we're not going to get into that part, but um, I want to begin just with a, a couple of words uh, at the very beginning of the book of, of the Revelation. I'm going to be reading um, the same translation as the Bibles that are in the rack, so you, you will be able to, to follow along. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 uh, says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants that must his, show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. Um, The book of Revelation, the series that we're going to be in is called The Seven. We're going to be looking at the beginning of the Revelation, which is uh, a a letters or a series of letters to the seven churches. In your bulletin, (coughs) excuse me, in your bulletin there's a map um, to kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about. It's a map of the modern day, uh, the western region of the modern day country of Turkey. Um, Turkey is not named after the bird. Um, it, is, it is a region populated by a group of people called the Turks. They came uh, from uh, Central Asia and they moved into the region that was known as Asia Minor in the Roman period. So this book is, is written before all that. It's written during the Roman period. Um, and uh, I want to give you a little bit of context of what the churches were before we get into the text itself because it's important to understand what, what this book is about um, as we get into it. Those seven churches, and you can see them, they kind of, there's a, a bit of a circuit there. Um, you can see how easy it would be for somebody to make a, a loop to visit these seven cities in this region. It is, um, it's next to the, and I don't know how, if you, you paid attention in geography class, this will make a lot of sense. If you, if you didn't, it might be tough. Um, but, but Greece, the nation of Greece, it, it sits a, it's, um, a peninsula sticking down into the Mediterranean Sea. And there's a little sea between it and Turkey called the Aegean Sea. It's gorgeous from what I've heard. I'm not saying I haven't been there, but uh, people that have been there have said it's great as long as there aren't storms. Um, but uh, it's a beautiful area. And the Greeks had migrated across that sea and they had settled in this, this region, what we would call Aegean Asia Minor. And this was a a massive population center uh, in the Roman Empire. There were a lot of people that lived in this area. They all spoke Greek. Um, That was the language of the area. Um, And uh, this was the main city of this region. Ephesus was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. Um, and so it was, a, it was a massive city, probably between three quarters of a million and a million people lived there. Um, it was very populated. And the rest of Turkey, if you were to go home and look on Google Earth, you would discover that the rest of the nation of Turkey is one of two things, either mountains or plains. Um, and in the plains, they would put wheat. They, they, um, 
That's where most of the, the wheat of Greece in that area was grown, was in the what's called the Anatolian High Plains. Um, topography is similar to the Midwest here in the U.S. If you've been to the High Plains um, out in Colorado, Wyoming, I guess that's not technically Midwest, it's the High Plains. Um, but, uh, but that's very similar topography. And then a bunch of mountains, awful mountains. And so this was a very protected region. Most people did not, uh, most armies didn't conquer there. And what had happened was Alexander the Great, the great uh, Macedonian general, he had conquered the whole world before the age of 35. Um, kind of a demoralizing thought for all of us who were older than him. Um, you're like, ah, what, what could somebody possibly accomplish before 35? Oh, well, conquer the whole known world. Oh, let's not talk about that. Um, but Alexander the Great conquered the whole known world. Um, and when he died, his empire was broken up. And eventually this region where these seven cities are, um, they became a kingdom. Um, it's actually called the Kingdom of Pergamus, which you can see one of those cities, Pergamum, in there. Um, it was, uh, but it was a um, it was a Greek culture under Roman rule, uh, and it was it was very very steeped in religion. And by religion, I don't mean Christianity or Judaism. It it had its own religious way. Um, they worshipped a number of gods and goddesses there. Um, there was a, a huge cult of the, the fertility god Artemis, um, and uh, there was a massive temple to Zeus. Um, there was a lot of uh, stuff going on there in that region. Um, well, so that region, we're going to take that idea, and this is going to feel a little, dis, a little disjointed at first, but we're going to take that what we've learned about that region set it over here for a moment, because we want to talk about what's going on in the Roman world around that region here, so you can understand as we get into this book. When Jesus was born, uh, around the year, go figure, one, um, uh, when Jesus was born, the, the Roman world was becoming an empire. The guy named Augustus, Caesar Augustus, was the first Roman emperor, and Jesus was born during his life. Augustus was succeeded by a couple of his distant relatives who adopted each other and all this stuff. It's called the Julian Claudian dynasty. Um, and the last of those kings was a, a last of those uh, emperors was a guy named Nero. And Nero was um, crazy, uh, but beside that, he was uh, he was um, he was um, crazy, and he also didn't want to get married, I won't get into the details of that, to anybody that would give him kids. He believed that he was going to live forever and he was going to be immortal. And around 68 uh, AD, he discovered that was not the case because he died. Um, And when Nero died without an heir, a civil war broke out, a massive civil war. It's called the Year of the Four Emperors. Um, Everybody who had any... um, uh, longing or, or, or passion or desire to rule the empire. This was your day. And there were all these guys, a guy named Otho and a guy named Vitellius and another guy. Um, and, and they just tried to take over the empire. And it was a mess. It was an absolute disaster. And then there was a, a, a revolution, a revolt in Judea where the Jews lived. The Judeans saw this as an opportunity to rise up against their masters and so their Roman leaders. And so they rose up in revolt. And the general that put them down, a guy named Vespasian, um, he decided that because he was able to control the Jews, he should become emperor. He left the war in the hands of his son Titus and he went to Rome and he became the emperor, Emperor Vespasian. Um, 
Now, first of the Flavian emperors, if you're keeping track. Julio-Claudian, Flavian emperors, nobody cares. All right. So, Vespasian became emperor. He was an old man. He had two sons. His oldest uh, son, Titus, who was 12 years older than the younger son, um, became emperor after him, ruled for a couple of years, and then died, probably killed by his brother, a guy by the name of Domitianus. Um, Domitianus was so crazy that he made Nero look sane. And he was a um, super, super controlling person with a, a, a major insecurity uh, problem. He was tall, gangly. Um, he, he probably had a stroke or something as a child, and part of his, the, one side of his face drooped from, from the descriptions that are, that are given to us. Um, he had kind of a, his, his eye would kind of wander off, um, and, and he, was, he was very peculiar. He, he had a lot of bizarre habits. Um, he was just a strange guy. Um, but he believed that he was the incarnation of the Roman god Jupiter, right, or the god Zeus in Greek culture, uh, particularly Jupiter Capitolinus. And this has significance because I'm going to pick up a third thread here. So now we've got a bunch of history floating around, and I know it's probably a little confusing to get it all out. But remember Vespasian, Domitianus' father, the guy that, that was defeating the Jews? Well, his son Titus conquered Jerusalem, and he destroyed the temple. And at the temple, the Jews, in order to pay for the temple, they paid a tax. You remember when Jesus, he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, unto God what is God's. Um, there's a moment in the Gospels where one of Jesus' disciples says to him, is it right for us to pay the temple tax? There's, there's all these conversations. There's one moment where, where Simon Peter gets asked that question, and then Jesus says to him, you shouldn't have talked out of turn, and sends him to go fishing. And Peter catches a fish, and it's got coins in its mouth. Very strange story. Um, but uh, but this, is, this was the temple tax. When you came to the temple, you paid this tax. Well, Vespasian, when Titus conquered the city, Vespasian said, you know what's going to be a great idea? Since we've defeated you guys, you Jews, you lousy bunch of troublemakers here, um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to still require you to pay that tax. But now... Instead of that tax going to the temple of your God here in Jerusalem, that, temp, that tax is going to be paid to the cult, to the temple of Jupiter Capitolinus, the, the god Jupiter in Rome. Now I'm going to pick up another thread that I just left off. Who did Domitianus believe he was? He believed he was Jupiter Capitolinus. He believed that he was this god that the Jews were being forced to pay um, through this temple tax, that they were being embarrassed, they were being humiliated, they were being oppressed, they were being driven crazy by this guy, this, this whole chain of events that's going on. Now, in all of this, all of this chaos, all of this mess, in Asia Minor there are seven churches. They're the ones that John writes to in the book of Revelation, of the Revelation. And here's the deal. They're not a part of any of these groups. They're no longer just Greeks. They're, they're no longer just living in the Aegean 
uh, coast of, of, of Turkey, Asia Minor, and, and able to observe all the religious practices of their, church, of, of their culture. But they're also not Romans, because they can't worship this Jupiter Capitolinus Roman emperor. But they're also not, not Jews. This thing is going nuts on my head. Sorry. Um, That's why I keep fiddling with it. It's flopping all over the place. But they're also not Jews. They're, they're no longer members of this Jewish sect, this, this, this way of doing So they're floating. They're, they're outside of every circle, every sphere of influence that's going on. And as a result, they are being crushed and attacked by everybody. So when we read the book of the Revelation, what we are reading is a letter to the churches who are trying to find their place in the world. They're trying to figure out who we are. What is the church? If we're not Greek, and we're not Roman, and we're not Jews, what what are we? And they're struggling to find that balance. Who are we in the world? How, How Roman can we be? How Greek can we be? How Jewish can we be? in this world, because no matter what we do, we're under pressure from all of these, these groups. And we know from the writings of the Apostle Paul that there was a tremendous amount of pressure from these groups. Uh, when you read the book of Galatians, you, you, you will see that the Jews were trying to push the Christians to be Jewish. If you read the books of Colossians, the book of Colossians, you will find that they were trying to push them to be Greeks. If you be, read the book of Romans, you will see that they, they were kind of trying to push them to be nothing. If you see in the, church, in the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you find a church being really bad at finding this balance. And Jesus, in the Revelation, speaking to John, chooses to address this church, these struggling churches, who are trying to find balance in the world. And if you and I are really honest with ourselves, the truth of the matter is that the church and we who make it up are still trying to find balance in the world. We're still struggling to figure out how how much of this can we be? How far to this side or that side can we go? What can we do? What can we not do? What should be our attitude toward this? What should our attitude be toward this? Should we be opposed to this? Should we be in favor of this? Should we vote this way? Should we vote that way? We're we're always sitting in that tension. And that's why um, when John begins this, this letter, he says, blessed are those who read the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. Because God knew that this was just the beginning. What, what happens in the revelation here, it's just the beginning. And we will be able to identify with everything we read in the revelation. Let me, let me uh, just say a couple of things that you will not hear uh, in the revelation. This may upset some people, but I've got to get it out at the end, out at the beginning. Number one, you will not hear me predicting the end of the world because the revelation doesn't predict that. I know. It's disappointing. The revelation does show us the culmination of the kingdom of God, but it does not give us a timetable whereby we can consult certain 
events in our modern day and go, aha, this is that, and that is this, and this is that, and therefore Jesus is coming on this day. It's not in there. It's a waste of your time to try to do that. In fact, I guarantee that any time someone predicts the second coming of Christ, he will not come on that day. It is a rule. It is a standard. It is a policy. All right? It is not about signs of the times. It's not about, we look at it and we go, ah, see, this is, this is what was predicted. Because what, what, what is talked about in the Revelation is what was going on in their day. And you say, well, we're, we're 2,000 years down, we've got to be closer to the coming of Christ and all this stuff. We might be, but guess what? The same sin is still at work in the world that was at work in their world. And the same God is still at work in the world in our world that was at work in their world. And our world is not that much different from their world. You know, it fascinates me that modern man thinks that we have so, we have so superseded everybody who came before us. The reality is that we still spin wheels and burn things. You could take the world's biggest muscle car. Oh, isn't it fantastic? Giant engine. All of these thingamabobs. Go zero to whatever in whatever amount of time. All that stuff. And you know what a car ultimately amounts to? Turning fire into wheel spinning. That's all it is. We're still spinning wheels and, and catching things on fire. So you're not that much different from your ancient ancestors. But that's neither here nor there. And that's kind of a side tangent. I want to get into the book here. So we're not looking at this. We're not looking this, at this for the end of the world. What we are looking for it is the conditions of the church, and particularly the church in pain. The church in pain. Now today we don't really understand what it means to be in pain as a church. We don't understand the pressures these guys were on because um, to a certain extent we live in a world where you're safe to be Christian. It's okay for you to be a Christian. Uh, nobody's going to knock down our doors with guns and take us all a pr- prisoner. Um, we, we live in a society where it's accepted, even if it's somewhat laughed at, that people are religious. We're not going to see any of that. But the church that, that Paul writes to is a church that is in pain, or the church that John writes to is a church that is in pain. And so, just beginning with that, I want to start in verse 4. I want to begin in verse 4 and just begin with what he has to say to a church in pain. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Let me ask you a question. What does it mean to be is and was and is to come? What does that mean? Infinite? In all time? Um, that He perceives all things? And so, we're talking about God, right? Okay. Obviously, we're talking about God. John is not somebody who is and was and is to come. We're talking about God here. And John says, grace and peace to, be, to you from Him who is and was and is to come. Does that mean that there is grace and peace sometimes for the church? In the good times, does the church have grace and peace? In, in the times when we have enough money, when in the times when we have a build, right building, in the times when our children all obey us, in the times when our programs are succeeding, then we have grace and peace, right? 
Now, if it is from Him who is and was and is to come, then it is grace and peace at all times. So John begins his statement by saying this, hey, God wants you to know that regardless whether you are in pleasure or pain, uh, whether you are in plenty or in need, whether you are struggling or you are succeeding, God's grace and peace is there because God is and was and is to come. This is from the seven spirits before His throne that ties in with the seven churches. We'll get into that in a little bit. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kingdoms of the earth. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve His God and Father. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. All the peoples of the earth will mourn because of Him. So shall it be. Amen. And now the Lord God speaks, and He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Lord God Almighty. So again, a declaration. Uh, just on a side note, that statement, Alpha and Omega, if you don't know, Alpha and Omega are the, uh, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Um, and in ancient Hebrew, in ancient Greek Jewish texts, when they translated the name of God, uh, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, they would from time to time substitute, rather than writing that word, they would substitute the letters Alpha, Omega. So the person who is speaking here, who, I'll give you a spoiler, it turns out to be Jesus, claims to be the God of the Old Testament. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. He says, I am all that there is for for the divine nature. We're going to actually come to that passage next week, so I'm going to set that aside because I want to get to John. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, the author of this book is the Apostle John. He also writes the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, three epistles, and he writes this letter. Uh, this, this book. The Revelation dates from toward the end of the reign of Domitianus, around 95 or 96 A.D. Um, and he writes to us, he writes to these local churches, but he also writes to us, and he wants us to understand something about what is going on that is the church. And this is so fundamental that, that I've spent the last 20 minutes kind of giving a bunch of historical context so that I could get to this verse. First of all, John says that he is our brother. Our brother. I, John, your brother and companion. The word companion comes from the Greek word koine. It means common, that he is a co-laborer, uh, um, he is in fellowship with us. He is, um, what's the word with? Uh, um, he, is, he is united with us. All right? That he is one with us. It's the same word that the word communion comes from. All right? That he is in communion with us. 
He says, I, John, your brother and companion. And look at the three things he says he is our companion in. In suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Wow. Way to encourage the congregation. What what uplifting terms. I am your brother and companion in everything that is awful. In suffering, in the kingdom, and in patient endurance. And on its surface, this doesn't mean a whole lot. And so, uh, I mean, we look at it, we go, okay, all right, so all this historical context, Rome and the Greeks and the Jews and temple tax and the church kind of, they're out on their own and they're struggling and John says to them, I'm going to give you grace and peace. Um, and now he says, and now he turns and he says that, that I'm your brother and companion in, in suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance. What is that all about? It all ties back uh, to, to two words in Greek. Um, I'm going to give them to you whether you care about them or not is, is completely up to you. The first word is the word revelation. It's translated in verse 1, revolution, revelation. It's the Greek word apocalypsis. It means the springing forth, the, the, the breaking forth. Um, it, it's not used a whole lot in, in Greek culture, but it's used for two particular ideas. Number one is the, like a spring coming out of the water, out of the ground. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. The other one is childbirth. Um, that that when something when a child was born, okay, those of you that um, were not like me, those of you who were brave enough to watch your children be born, um, I sat safely behind a screen with fake cigars in my hand, waiting. No, um, actually, when when Ariel was born, it was three o'clock in the morning, and I was, uh, yeah, I probably couldn't even remember what I was doing or saying. But anyway, um, the the uh, if you've seen a child be born, you know that, that breaking forth is a pretty good description of what happens. All right? And I don't think we need to get into any more details of that. If you, if you need illustrations, talk to Tom. He's had six. Um, well, well, Becky's had six. Tom has had to watch. Um, but the, the, the idea is this springing forth, this, this breaking forth, something that is hidden, something that is still there but not visible, suddenly comes, comes into the visible world. And so this book, this, this idea that John wants to convey, that, well, that Jesus is conveying through John, is this idea of this breaking forth, this revealing of Jesus into the world. And as that breaking forth and revealing is taking place, as, it's, as the world is experiencing the crowning, the aborning of Jesus' presence and Jesus' kingdom in this world, he says there will be suffering. That's the second Greek word that I want you to, to catch. It's, it's actually a great word. The word is thlipsis. I'll try saying that six times fast. All right, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. Um, and the word is actually still used in modern, in modern medicine. It's the idea of a pressure from an external source. All right, like some, a pressure that, that comes from the outside, pressing in. Not, not pressure and pain. And... and the image that he uses, the image that he evokes, and John loves to evoke um, a, a birth metaphor. The idea is that the suffering and the pain and the pressure that the church is enduring, that this is the pressure and pain of a child being born. 
Not the pressure and pain that the mother experiences, but that the child experiences. And I had never, I, this had never occurred to me until I started studying this, this, um, this text. And I, and I started to, uh, um, you know, I started to read some, some scientific texts and some Greek texts on this. Um, and, and the idea is, I mean, what, what, we don't remember it because we were babies at the time, but what tremendous pain a child must go through to be born. I mean, their heads get squished and turned sideways. and I mean, it's just a whole, whole brouhaha, all right? Um, that's brouhaha. That's a great word. Um, and that, that's what he's describing for the church. He's saying, look, you are in the midst of, of the kingdom of God, the, 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 the presence of God. The church is the birthing of this thing, this new thing that Jesus is doing. So of course there's going to be a suffering. Of course there's going to be pain. Of course you're going to have to endure. You have to go through it because something new is being born into this world and you're a part of it. Something new is coming about. Something that has always been, and yet it is, it is being born into this world, is happening. And there is pain involved in that. And I think that is a message that the church of Jesus Christ needs to know today in the modern world. That the church is not convenient. Moms, I know you all love your kids. How convenient was giving birth to those children? It was a blast, right? Oh yeah. Alright? I mean, I was only the husband, and I had scars, and I had, my face would have been pulled, and she's like, tell me something good! Alright, I mean, it was, I, she, I'm not lying. Alright? Um, she was like, quote scripture to me! I'm like, I can't breathe! Um, Childbirth is not fun. I mean, nobody does this for kicks. And yet it is necessary for that new life to be born. And, and, and there's scriptural uh, conversations about that. And, and I had never even occurred to me, but God talks about the pain of childbirth in Genesis and then uses a metaphor. I'm going to have to think about that. I may have to listen to my own sermon this Sunday. Um, but there, there, is, there is something dramatic that happens there because something new is being born. It is something that the world has never seen. And there's going to be pain with that. There's going to be a requirement for patient endurance for that. The church is not meant to be easy. The church is not meant to be smoothed and even and performance-based. The church is meant to be a little bit ragged because something new is being born. Something new is entering the world. Through us. And that means something. And to John, writing to these churches, he says, look, now, now it's, it's a metaphor, this isn't a re- reality, but, but he, says, look, he says, look, as you're going through this, of course you're going to have difficulty. Of course you're going to have challenges. Of course there are going to be hard times. Of course there are going to be good times and there are going to be hard times. There's going to be, uh, you know, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? Contractions. All right, there, there are going to be times when things hurt and times when things don't. He says, but we're all in this together. 
We're all in this together. He says, look, I'm on the island of Patmos because of it. He says, I'm here on this island because of what God is doing. I'm writing to you from a distance because of what God is doing. There is something huge happening. There is something new being born. And you know what? For the last 2,000 years, something new has been being born. Has been being born. What tense is that? I don't even... <laughs> has been being born. It's like the past, present, conjunctive... I don't know. Um, the, you know but, but it's true. It, for the last 2,000 years, something has been being born. And it will continue on. It, there is no, no perceivable end of this. It is a, it is a process of, of something new being born. And when you get to the end of the revelation, you see what it is that's being born. But we are in the midst of that, that aborning. We are in the middle of that. So, so brothers and sisters, if you are going through pain, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, understand it is the birth pains of something new that God is doing through you and through your church and through your family, through your life. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand that what we face, the the trials and the difficulties that we face are just the birth pains of the glory of God. We need to understand that when when sin is lined up against us, when Satan lines up against us and wants to beat on us and wants to stop us, it is because he wants to, he doesn't care about you, he wants to abort the birth of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, the pain of the church should be the joy of its people. Now, we, we should not go around looking for pain. Go ahead, hit me, hit me, persecute me. No. But when it happens, we endure. We go through. We accept God's grace and peace upon us who is and was and is to come. Because something new is being born. Something new is happening. And it is constantly new. We are in the middle of it just as they were. If we're honest, our world is still torn apart by the same forces that tore John's world apart. Aren't they? We have our culture, a culture that gives us things like, no offense to Courtney, Justin Bieber. A culture that, that tells our daughters to sell themselves to the men of this world. A culture that worships idols, not maybe not golden idols, but American idols. A show I haven't watched in about a decade. Um, why, you say? Because of a deep religious conviction? No, because Bo Bice lost and he should have won. Anyway, um, <laughs> our culture pulls against us, but doesn't our religion pull against us? How much religion do you know about that pulls against the Scriptures? Pulls against what God wants to do? Pulls against um, uh, uh, what... I mean, just pulls against the Bible. 
because it's a, a moral code, a, a subculture, a way of thinking. And, and it says, no, no, you should be like this. No, 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 you should be like that. And our culture saying, no, 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 you should do this. And no, 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 you should do that. And then we've got a government, which may or may not be run by crazy people, that is telling us to do this and to do that and to be here and to be that. Tool side note. All right, any of you guys see the George, George W. Bush uh, library dedication? Did not George Herbert Walker Bush have the most awesome socks in the history of mankind? All right, so, but all of these, all of these pressures, are, sorry, I just had to say that, all of these pressures are pooling, pooling us, and we as the church, we're in the middle of it because of the pain that we, that's the pain that we experience. Something new is being born. Something new is being born. And that, is worth knowing. So brothers and sisters, when you face pain and persecution because of the, co- the cause of Jesus Christ, just remember, it's just the birth, pain, birth pains of the glory of the kingdom of God. And, and John is going to encourage the churches along the way in a lot of this. And I know this is, this is a typical first sermon it, uh, in a series. It's got a whole lot of information. A lot of it will sort out over the next couple of weeks. Um, but... Uh, Remember that. Remember that. Because you're going to read these seven churches and you're going to identify with some of the difficulties that they faced. Um, And three of them are mediocre. Two of them are outright bad, these churches. And only two of them actually get things right. That tells us this is a difficult challenge that we're facing. Let's pray. Father, we live in a blessed age. We have freedom of religion in our nation. We have freedom of speech, freedom of the press. We're not restricted in any way, shape, or form in the observance of our faith. And yet we know that this is not the normal setting for human experience. For most of history, those who were faithful to the Word of God were subject to tremendous pressure. And we might live in a time, a lull, but who knows when we might experience these birth pains again as churches. And individually, we face opposition from time to time. Individually, we face pressure from those who we love sometimes. Lord, we pray that You would be glorified in these birth pains. That Your grace and peace would be extended to us in Your tremendous and glorious way. Because we know that You are the One who is and was and is to come. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And that something glorious is being born in our midst. We thank You for Your glory and grace. In Jesus' name.